0: I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, we're going to read the whole chapter. Together, our text will be the verses 16 through 18. Listen to the Word of God. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And our text is verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most embarrassing incidents in the history of Australian aviation took place on the 24th of January, 1967. It involved two of the most experienced pilots working for the Department of Civil Aviation. On this day, they were practicing a series of touch and goes using a HS-125, which is a mid-sized business jet. This was back in the 60s, of course, and in those days, flight simulators were not as well-developed as they are now. They were not commonly used. And so if you wanted to practice in a particular model aircraft, then you had to actually be in the aircraft to do it. And you had to do a procedure called a touch-and-go Which is that you take off, fly a circuit, then land, and without stopping, you taxi and then take off again. That's called the touch and go. Now, these pilots on this particular day were on their 11th touch and go, and they touched down on the runway, but they had forgotten to put down the wheels. So their aircraft skidded for 731 meters along the runway and then came to a halt and burst into flames. Both pilots escaped. An analysis of this incident was written up in the Aviation Safety Digest, and it said the following, As cockpit sequences are repeated, circuit after circuit, it is unfortunately all too easy to gloss over and perhaps gradually disregard the methodical implementation of the prescribed cockpit checking procedures so essential to safe operation, End quote. Now you might wonder, how could two senior pilots who themselves would train and examine other pilots have overlooked something so basic? But we could ask ourselves the same question. We all know God's law, It is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. It is expressed in a life of thankfulness. And yet we all sometimes become careless in how we live. We go through the motions in the Christian life without really paying attention to what God has told us. And then Christians can fall into sin. That's why we listen to the Ten Commandments every week, even though we know them already. But maybe you still wonder, why is this necessary? In our text today, Paul writes, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. What does he mean by that? He cannot mean that we ignore God's commands altogether because this very thing that he said is a command. He said in the first verse, walk by the Spirit, that is a command. So if we think about that logically, then walking by the Spirit in any case does not Exclude obeying God's commands. But how do we make sense out of this? If you walk by the Spirit, you are not under law. Yet we are to obey God's commands. We're going to look at that this morning, and we'll consider this basic um, command in the text that God commands us to walk by His Spirit. And we'll see that this command is gracious and this command is serious. So again, our text opens with a command, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, what does he mean by the flesh? This has often been misunderstood as the physical part of us. People think there are two parts of us, two parts to us. you get got the fleshly part, which is evil, and the spiritual part, which is good. This is our, our um, better values, our better judgment, so to speak. And so then they tend to distinguish between these two things. But uh, that that type of dualism, that distinction between flesh and spirit is not at all what Paul means. It's actually something you find in um, many old heresies such as Gnosticism. What our text means is something different. After all, the fall into sin corrupted all of us, body and soul. So you cannot say that one part of us is necessarily more sinful than the rest. The point is that the flesh is everything in us, which is sinful. Sometimes the Bible refers to that as the old nature. It's terminology that we find back in the catechism as well. It contrasts the old nature with the new nature that has been given by God. In fact, um, if you have a child in catechism, year 7 through 10, then uh, they, they would know about this because they just finished memorizing that Lord's Day. So maybe you can get them to recite it when you're home. But there are no two parts of us. Instead, there are two natures. And you have the old nature, which is dying off, and the new nature, which is coming to life. And this flesh is the old nature. The flesh is the old nature. And what the Spirit works in us is the new nature. So Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, this is something very different from what Paul's Jewish opponents were saying. As you know, the churches in Galatia had been visited by false teachers. These teachers taught that in order to be a Christian, you had to put yourself under the law first, the Jewish law. In other words, they were teaching that faith in Christ was not enough to be saved. You had to do something yourself if you wanted to be a Christian. Now, this type of teaching exists in many... Uh, forms today as well. One place where you find it back is Roman Catholicism. Um, Consider these words from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, article 2010. It says, quote, Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. End quote. In other words, salvation becomes a cooperative effort between God and man. Or to put it differently, you get in by grace and you stay in by works. Now something like that was happening in Galatia. These false teachers essentially taught faith plus works. You put yourself under the law, and the first sign of that is for the men to be circumcised. That's why Paul carries on about circumcision in this letter. And they said, when you do that, that's when you're right with God. And then Jesus gets added on to that. But the problem, of course, is that the law was never meant to be used in this way. The law was not, is not, Never has been intended for us to add our works onto those of Christ. The law instead was meant to point us to Christ. In fact, Paul wrote about that in Galatians 3, verse 22, when he said that the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. All that the law can do is show you where you have gone wrong. The law was a constant reminder of sin. A lot of the Old Testament law describes the various sacrifices that were there to atone for the sins that the people committed. And these sacrifices had to be carried out over and over because the people kept on sinning. As the writer of the letter to the Hebrews puts it, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So in the Old Testament, the law would remind you of your sin. It would tell you what to do to deal with your sin. But it could never take away your sin. Not permanently. That is why we need the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Because He kept every one of God's commandments. He kept all of them perfectly. And the moment that you trust in Him as your personal Lord and Savior, you are justified That means that God regards it as completely righteous in his eyes because of the merits of Christ. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 3 verse 28, we are told, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And there is nothing that you could ever do to add to that. You will never, if you are a believer, you will never be more righteous in the eyes of God than you are at this very moment. Now, maybe you have particular sins in your life that you struggle with. That may all be that may be so. But the fact is that your success or your failure in your day to day struggles does not define who you are in the eyes of God. If you're joined to Christ by faith, God regards you as a part of Christ. It is a legal reality. Again, if you are joined to Christ in faith, God will never regard you as more righteous than you are at this very moment. You cannot keep the law any better than Christ has done. If you are joined to him, you belong to him, then his life, his merits become yours. Think of it this way. Imagine a teenager who was adopted into a particular family. Maybe he or she does not understand all the rules of the home yet. Or maybe this this teen came from a difficult background and um, pushes back against the rules. But the adoption paperwork has been signed. Once that paperwork has been signed, that teenager carries the family name. The family name is not something that the teen learns or earns by, by good behavior. The family name is not earned by good behavior The family name is there as an existing legal reality. And that's how it is in our lives with Christ. We are Christians because we are members of Christ by faith. And that's true apart from any merit of our own. In fact, the Lord promised that to us at our baptism before any of us were in a position to respond. You'll never be more weak than you were on the day that you were baptized The only time that you'll be weaker than that is the day that you die. And yet it was then, at your weakest point, that God made those promises to you. Faith is simply recognizing that and acting accordingly. If you believe in Christ, you are joined to Him in faith. If you are joined to Him in faith, if you are joined to Him in His death, in His resurrection... then you are no longer under law. That means then your relationship is not defined by whether or not you have kept or broken his law. And that reality applies to all parts of the law. In Reformed theology, we often speak of the threefold division of the law of God. And we've, you're probably familiar with this by now because we've raised it here before. But when you look at the law of God as it's laid out for us in the whole Bible, uh, you can typically divide it into three categories. Especially in the Old Testament, it's divided into three parts, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. Right, And the, the moral law of God is His requirements for how we live. The ceremonial part of the law pertain to the sacrifices and the ceremonies of worship, and the civil part pertain to how the nation of Israel was meant to be run. Now, these laws have all been fulfilled in Christ. Romans 10 verse 4 says that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that applies to all aspects of the law. The letter to the Hebrews makes it clear that Christ fulfilled the ceremonial part of the law. The civil law no longer applies in the way that it did in the past either because the kingdom of God is not limited anymore to the nation of Israel. And also because Christ said his kingdom is not of this world. Remember, he said that to Pilate. So the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. The civil law is fulfilled in Christ. What about the moral? Does the moral law, is that included as well? The moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. We read these commandments in church every Sunday morning. And why why do we do that? Why do we pay so much attention to the moral law? Our text clearly says if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So why do we focus so much on this part of the law? Are we saying that we're not under the civil and ceremonial parts of the law, but we are still under the moral part? And this is key to understanding the whole passage. If you get this wrong, you have not understood the gospel. Why do we pay such close attention to the moral law? Well, one factor to consider is that the moral law is not limited by time. The ceremonial and civil laws were necessarily temporary. They were um, put in place for God's people in the Old Testament in the old dispensation. They were temporary, but the moral law is not. The moral law was already in place from the beginning. Consider, for example, the story of Cain and Abel. Most of you would be familiar with that. The very first murder in the Bible. Cain murders his brother. And that act was already considered to be murder. God already pronounced a curse over Cain for what he did even though the Ten Commandments had not yet been given and in Romans 2 verse 15 the Apostle Paul indicates that even unbelievers who have never heard the law of God still intuitively know the basic difference between right and wrong in their own way they're still aware of God's moral law because this has been so to speak imprinted on their consciousness on some level they don't know God himself but they know his law They know about his law. Everybody, even unbelievers, have a a basic sense that murder is wrong, for example, that that it's wrong to cheat on your spouse, that, that it's better not to lie, and so on. So yes, the Ten Commandments were given to Israel, but they are the most basic expression of the universal moral law of God, which is valid at all times and in all places for all people. The civil and ceremonial law were temporary. The moral law was not. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the moral law of God has always existed. It always will Psalm 119 says that your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. God's law has not changed and it never will. Having said that, the way in which we stand in relation to God is not defined by law-keeping and it is not defined by law-breaking anyway. It is defined by Christ. So in that sense, we are not under law. But sin is still a transgression of the law. Paul writes about that in Romans 4 verse 15. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. God's law is eternal. Therefore, sin has always and will always be sinful. Sin still offends God. The Canons of Dort refer to this in chapter 5, article 5. It says that when believers sin, they greatly offend God incur the guilt of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes, for a while, lose a sense of God's favor. So just because the law has been fulfilled in Christ, even the moral law does not make sin any less sinful. So everything depends on what Paul means when he says you are no longer under law. To be no longer under the law does not mean the same thing as sin is no longer sinful. What it does mean is that you are no longer under the condemnation of the law and you are no longer judged by your ability or inability to keep the law. Instead, God Himself leads us by His Spirit. Now, it's easy to lose sight of God's grace and what can become a technical discussion. So let's stop and think about that for a moment. Our text begins and ends with God's Spirit. God himself leads us by his Spirit. is it not remarkable that he would walk with us at all? He doesn't wait for us to get our life in order and then empower us. He walks with us. Sin has a deadly power to it which cannot be broken apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The power of sin is the law. And yet the law cannot motivate you to a holy life. All it does is give you commandments to transgress. So God forgives us our sins in Christ and then He walks with us. He doesn't just leave us with a set of instructions. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God Himself, the creator of heaven and earth, actually dwells in us. He walks with us and leads us so that we are able to keep God's commandments with joy. So that means this passage is not just a command. God commands us to walk by His Spirit, but this command is gracious. He gives us that grace. He empowers us. And so this passage is then a promise and not just a command. To walk by the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit imply guidance. It's like a child being led by a parent. And that brings us hope because it means that change is possible on a fundamental level. You can change. You can be so discouraged by sin in your life. Maybe there's a particular sin that you struggle with. You brought that sin with you this morning. Maybe no one else knows about it. And you've been burdened by it for so long, you've tried everything. You want to break with it. But what is your motivation to break with it? Why do you want to break with it? To please your parents? To prove to yourself that you can? To become a better person? Well, none of those motivations will produce lasting change. True change and true motivation to change comes from the Spirit. Christians are dead to the law. They're no longer subject to the law of Moses. Instead, they are led by the Spirit. But now, what happens when you're led by the Spirit? What does that sort of life look like? And it turns out that it is a life which lines up exactly with the Ten Commandments. And that's the life that God calls us to live. God commands us to walk by His Spirit. It's a gracious command, but it is also a serious command. Gonna look at that next. So, why should we obey God's commandments? Because He calls us to walk by the Spirit, and the Ten Commandments show us exactly how to do that. The Ten Commandments properly understood, of course. As we hear them on, on Sunday, they they represent the totality of God's moral law in Scripture. And therefore also um, things like how Jesus explained it in the Sermon on the Mount, which is also also repeated and laid out for us in the Catechism. So why should we obey God's commandments? Because He calls us to walk by the Spirit, and because the Ten Commandments show us how to do this. Christ loved the Ten Commandments. He kept them perfectly. He kept them unto death. He died so that we could be forgiven for all of the times that we broke them. And then by His Spirit, He enables us to keep them as well. See, the whole point of salvation is for us to be re- renewed into the image of God again. The image of God is the righteousness and the holiness that we had in the beginning. When God saves us, He progressively renews this image in us and that new Life is expressed through the keeping of God's law. Jesus confirmed this when he spoke to his disciples before his crucifixion. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. And in his letter to Titus, Paul reminds us that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is the whole point of salvation. That's what he means by walking with the Spirit. So that's why we read the Ten Commandments every Sunday. Every Sunday we read the moral law so that every Sunday we can be reminded of what Christ has done. And every Sunday we're reminded of his call on our lives, that we obey him in return. Just like a pilot should go through his checklist every time that he does a touch and go, even though he knows all of the steps. So we are called to contemplate these twin realities every week, that Christ kept the law perfectly for me, and that I should try to keep it perfectly to honor him, even if I can't. As the Catechism says at the end of its explanation on the law, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. But the point is, the beginning is there. It is there. The beginning of true, true obedience is there. So, our response to the law is an indication as to where our heart is at. The Spirit is willing to lead, but are we willing to follow? Do we truly love the law? Do we truly love the Ten Commandments? Do we love hearing them every Sunday? In Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And he still had the law in a shadowy form. This was a shadowy form without Christ. He didn't, obviously they knew about the Christ who was to come, but they did not know Christ as he revealed himself in the New Testament. But we do. How can we long any less for his commandments? Walk by the Spirit, he says, and we are to take that seriously. Because if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But if you turn that around, it means if you are not led by the Spirit, you are a lawbreaker. Then you're not actually a child learning to grow, but a lawbreaker persisting in sin. As the Apostle John writes in his first letter, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. and The truth is not in him. Then you're still under the law. That means you're still under its curses. And then says Paul in verse 21, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it comes back down again to this basic question what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who belongs to Christ. And because that person belongs to Christ, he or she obeys his law. To put it differently, you are not a Christian because you obey, but you obey because you are a Christian. Do you ever struggle with that? we ever struggle with a command to walk by the spirit. Verse 17 says for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So where is the true you? Which part do you identify with the most closely? Is it with the spirit who fights the flesh or with the flesh that fights the spirit? Faith says, so. He doesn't ask us if we are his children. He asks us to believe. He asks us to believe the promises that he made to us. And then he calls us to obey. Yes, obedience is difficult, but it's also a sign of regeneration. In fact, the very difficulty is a sign of regeneration. As Kelvin points out, people who have no faith don't battle the flesh. Or if they do, they try it on their own strength and they fail. We should expect obedience to be difficult. Of course it's going to be difficult. Because of this very reason. These very words that that are laid out for us in the text. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Of course it's going to be difficult. What did you expect? Martin Luther made a helpful comment here on battling the flesh. He said, to battle the flesh, quote, does not mean that they do not feel its desires at all. It means that they do not gratify them. Even though they feel their flesh raging and rebelling against the Spirit and feel themselves falling into sins and living in them, they do not become downcast on that account or immediately suppose that their way of life, their social station and the works they have done in accordance with their calling are displeasing to God. No, they fortify themselves with faith. That's what Luther said. So get up and fight. Fight. Remember, no matter how difficult the fight is, the desires of the Spirit will always win. The Holy Spirit is completely effective in bringing about the obedience that the legalists said will only ever come from the law. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this is true in your life personally? If you have children, do you believe it's true for them? Or don't you trust the Holy Spirit? Are you, in your parenting, attempting to do with the law what can only be done by the Holy Spirit? God commands us to walk by His Spirit. This command is gracious. It's also serious. And that is why verse 18 is meant to reassure us. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That means you are no longer subject to its curses. Then you're primary identity is not that you are a law breaker but that you are a child of God and there's always room for God's children there's always forgiveness for God's children if you're led by the spirit you are not under the law as we continue to grow in our faith we will more and more desire to hear the law of God not as a demand that can never be met not as a curse pronounced over our waywardness, but as the confident voice of our Lord who says, This is what I've done for you. This is my love for you. Now love me by doing likewise. Amen.